Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tellway Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrew and I'm here with Nick Hare and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. And this week, we're discussing why we ask how much a newborn baby weighs. So, so Chris, why do we ask how much a newborn baby weighs? Uh, well, I was given to ask myself the same question when um, a, a sort of acquaintance of mine um, recently had a, a baby, and I was sort of at a bit of a loss, not necessarily terribly fascinated by their their lives. Um, and uh, so I so I was thinking about what to ask, and and social convention prompted me to say so how how much did the baby weigh uh and and um you know they they told me that it was uh, uh nearly 9 pounds i think um and uh i i actually found that to be quite useful information in 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 some way so i sort of asked this question automatically uh but actually i got quite a lot out of of the answer you know as a 9 pounds is a relatively health well a, a pretty healthy weight uh it sort of suggests a quite quite a large baby so perhaps the the labor was more difficult than for a, for a smaller baby so the 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 mother may be um you know needing longer to recover and and so on and so forth so um i i essentially started querying why um why we ask questions like that that aren't sort of directly probing what we're interested in i.e is is the baby okay there's a bit of a taboo to sort of say you know is the is the baby okay and is the is the mother okay um so these kind of proxy questions come in come in quite useful so i started thinking about the value of of indirect questions okay uh are there any other areas that we can immediately think about where we're using indirect questions like this i hope so yeah well well one one that one that comes to mind um is um the issue of for example how much somebody earns so um you know we we rarely ask people flat out directly how much how much do you earn uh and yet it's something which is kind of a you know an interesting bit of information to us and can can be useful if we're trying to sell someone something or uh whatever it might be and so you know we might ask all sorts of proxy kind of questions to to get to get to the point um so things like you know oh where you know where do you live what do you do these these kinds of questions you know maybe they'll lead to other interesting conversation items but essentially particularly in in you know um repressed british society we we ask things in a in a kind of roundabout a roundabout way yeah so i mean is this a british thing i'm wondering and um apparently in britain if you go to a party um you're not meant to ask what someone does for a living you're not meant to ask their job apparently um well, who decided and, that yeah i don't know because i just read this in a book somewhere that apparently the british don't do that and you kind of have to kind of feel your way there and go oh do you have far to go to each work to work each day or do you work in an office and it turns into 20, 20 questions or something but which was news to me because i i tend to just i don't think it's I don't think it's too socially taboo to well, say what what's your job. Well, a friend a friend of mine who uh, after university basically spent a few years bumming around. Mm. Uh, he used to get really frustrated by that question, and he would immediately 
um, he would immediately take against anybody who asked that that question because the answer was not not much. Uh, <laughs> well, he doesn't have to be doing a job though. I mean, no, if no, he literally no. has nothing to say, then he's probably pretty boring. So that's already conveying quite useful information. He used to tell everybody he was a pilot. <laughs> um, so. Is that t- totally and utterly untrue? It's totally and utterly untrue. Well, he sounds yeah. like probably like a psychopath or something. Yeah. This guy. Yeah. I, see, I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I, yeah. th- and I think he didn't tell everyone he was a serial killer. Of course. Well, look, there is there is value. Um, actually, in questions which are going to be sort of ninety nine percent of the time, you're going to get a stock answer. Uh, if that one percent of the time, when someone doesn't answer properly or does something unexpected or is uh, evasive about it, you're actually learning something quite interesting. You know, if someone is refusing to tell me what they do, I'm going to assume they probably either don't do anything or do something really boring. Or they're a spy. No, because that's that's the point. A spy is going to have Spoilers. a really good answer to that. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but it, but someone who wants you to think that they're a spy but isn't is going to be all evasive um, about what they do. So yeah, I mean, I think you can glean. You can. You, obviously, there are lots of uh, questions that you can glean information, incidental information from. It's almost impossible to not give away some information, and it's not even just about the content of what you say. You know, it's the way you say it and the the accent you have, and and those sorts of things. But I, but I question whether or not actually this. Is about information primarily. Um, it seems to me that when we're asking about a baby's weight, I I don't think I even know what to do with that information. Particularly, I think if it's extreme, if the baby is tiny or huge, maybe you'll um, that'll prompt further discussion. But in general, the the information will just go into one ear and come out the other. For me, I mean, I, I and so I think the purpose of this kind of conversation is actually more social. It's just about social bonding. Um, I think we've mentioned Kate Fox before. She's an anthropologist who wrote about, who's written a few books about the English. Um, and she says, you know, a lot of commentators say, oh, you know, why are the English so interested in people in the weather? Why do they all get together and talk about the weather? And she said, well, it's not actually nothing to do with being interested in the weather, weather at all. What it is is a social bonding ritual where, you know, we, we talk about something which is completely uncontroversial so that we can... Uh, agree with each other about something and it doesn't matter what it is and for me the the one that i'm uh, sort of think of because i'm alienated from it is sport talk so when people get together and start having these what look you know from from the outside perspective completely meaningless sort of circular conversations about you know different football teams and who's won and who's lost and who's doing well and with how stupid the manager is and those sorts of things um i have no idea what they're talking about um but uh, but it looks to me very like discussion about the weather in that it's it really isn't they're not they're not trying to convey information to one another they're just trying to agree with each other about something and um and i think the the advantage of having these sorts of topics uh is that they allow us to do social bonding using words without and at the same time avoiding anything controversial um and i think i think that's the that's the key and interesting thing though the the avoidance of of controversy uh in these questions you know they're non-contentious questions but yet it's it's i don't think it is purely about social bonding you are sort of effectively sounding people out in a in in a conversation so when people are talking about um football uh they're probably making some judgments about people so you know um for for anybody with you know some awareness of football if somebody says uh i'm a manchester united fan that immediately tells you something about that that individual and does it does it, it uh, well i i think it, it you then have to cross reference with the extent to which they're actually a mancunian yes because if uh, i know i know a manchester united fan from manchester who's really annoyed about the fact that people think 
if you're from Manchester, you don't support Man United because in Manchester there's two teams and and it's roughly 50-50 as I understand it. And yet, because Manchester United had this fabulous PR campaign in the in the 80s and 90s, you know they they have a very widespread international uh, support base, and so that you know people people assume that you're probably not authentic I would assume that the inference people make is oh you're only saying you're a football fan you're not really because Manchester United are what you support if you don't know anything about football well but also sort of um, about somebody's personality so their their attraction towards you know effectively being being basic in 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 kids speak you know their attraction towards the most popular uh, um, item but but it's more just generally the way you can have conversations or ask questions and determine lots lots of things which uh, superficially to others they might they might not not pick up pick up on yeah I think that's a fair point because I think you know going back to the original example of asking someone about their baby and how much it weighs yes there is definitely an element of social convention about that but it's also kind of as Nick said that unless it sort of town sounds really tiny or really huge it, it is also a kind of a shorthand conversation to say, you know, is everything all right? And so if they say, you know, is one kilo or two pounds or if it was, you know, um, over 10 pounds, then there's a conversation right there. And if you're sort of dealing in the same currency, yeah, you'll be able to have a sort of a further chat about that. So I think it's an element of both. It, it, it reminds me a bit of... Um sort of um, repressive regimes where, you know, um, art may sort of be principally about or nominally about, you know, a particular non-controversial issue, but actually there's there's sort of hidden criticism or conversations might occur. You know, nobody wants to, to badmouth the regime publicly, but but there are ways of doing that. You know, if you if you say, you know, oh, yes, they're, they're a very enthusiastic party member or something... Uh, that can't be taken as criticism of them, but but to those in a particular cat, you know, they'll they'll read read between the lines, and it's that it's that reading between the lines which I think is a really valuable analytical skill. And I, I think what interests me is is whether this is something that um, if there's anything peculiarly British that we're good at doing that or not. Um, on a slight sort of offshoot, I don't know if this is the same thing, but a number of years ago I was on holiday in the Caribbean. And I'd spend all holiday um, mainly with Americans, meeting new Americans. And I just found it utterly exhausting because within the first five minutes of meeting someone, I knew huge amounts of information about them. I knew about, you know, where they lived. I probably knew how much they earned. I certainly knew their job. I knew about their family. I knew about their ground. I just knew so much information. When I, when I first went to the US when I was 10 in 1987, we got out of JFK Airport and got a cab. And this cabbie, this was almost like a microcosm or almost like a parody of what you're saying. This cabbie, right, he put our luggage in in the boot and then got out his wallet and started showing us pictures of his kids. Mm. And, and, you know, this is my this is my nephew, Stevie. He's doing really well. I, I don't I, this is I don't not remotely interested. I just want to get to this address, please. You know, well, the, the thing is, for me, I didn't mind all this exchange. Um, but I, I, I was just exhausted by it after a week or so. And then what happened, there happened to be one day I was on a, on a, on a launch, on a boat launch going, there was a sort of a five minute journey. Do you and mean I, that they were launching a boat? No, it was a launch, which is the name That's of a, a kind, kind of boat. That's a kind of boat, is it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and I found myself sitting next to this little old lady, this sweet little old lady who turned out to be English. Um, and we sat and we chatted for five minutes, um, the length of the journey. And I have no idea what we chatted about other than that. 
at the end of that conversation, neither of us knew anything about the other. Um, but we'd had a perfectly nice chat, though. I didn't know her name. I didn't know where she came from. And I just found it so refreshing, you know? Um, and, yeah, I don't know yeah, what you've my... you've got all the, all, the, all the benefit of social interaction and social grooming uh, without, without having to give away any potentially harmful information. Yeah. But also, but... I mean, I suppose, you know, obviously the more direct communication style is 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 probably more efficient you know you've got all that information passed over in a short period of time but like you say it's quite cognitively exhausting Hmm. um but in in reality often you know the world around us is not uh, you know the the workings of it are not immediately apparent you know there are all sorts of questions which which are important to know the answer to which you can't you can't just see all the information there and so i think there is something about having the ability to um look at look at proxies and determine things you know if you want to know um something like you know how much plutonium has north korea got mm. they're not going to tell you in a five minute conversation at the airport uh but um you know there are only certain things you you, you might be able to find out you know bits of information related to it which will help you you know generate an estimate of how much plutonium they've got and and i think that ability uh to be used to sort of you, you know receiving bits of information and th- and not accepting them at face value and thinking wait a minute what does what does that mean and if i stitch it together with this other bit of information what do, what do those two things mean together i think that to me is uh, you know the the essence of analysis mm. Mm. Yeah, I think we're very good at that. We're very good at naturally finding bits of information. And of course, uh, if when you we... say we, do you mean humans or, or, or yeah, British? humans? Okay, yeah. humans. Assuming you're a human, which uh, yeah, no, I, definitely I was. Uh, yeah, and uh, so we're obviously very good at picking up on those sorts of signals. And and the question is, so is it the case that we were wondering, weren't we, about whether or not uh, British people are, are sort of more or less. Um, uh, do, do, do we try and mask signals more as a result? I mean, are there more signals we want to pick up on than in the US? Because I, I agree, only anecdotally, obviously, um, but I anecdotally, my experience with Americans is they're just very happy to be much more direct about things that we find uncomfortable. So um, I'm particularly, um, particularly sort of wealth and... Um, uh, and religion and things like that. I mean, they they you know seem to be quite happy to sort of saying, telling you about their successful, how successful their life is. Sometimes it feels a bit like a sales pitch when you meet someone for the first time. Now in Britain, we don't have any less incentive to try and signal success, but we do it much more discreetly. I think or we do it in a way that um, where we we know you know we kind of assume that the other person is going to be able to pick up on. Uh, things that we that we talk about so instead of saying um you know we had this fabulous holiday in a five thousand pound a week uh chateau you you uh will say things about the holiday about things you did and about where you were um which give that information but without coming out and saying it and and so and i think the you know the the reason is that we are suspicious um we've we've developed a culture of status in which um, overtly seeking to uh, advertise your status is low status. Mm. So, so it's very important for us not to look like we're trying to convince other people that we're high status. The reason, and the reason for that, I think, I think you know, this is, and I'm, I'm now venturing into sort of speculation land here, is that um, 
the uh, in the US status hierarchy is much more closely tied I think to wealth they don't there isn't sort of an aristocracy there isn't some other dimension which can give you status necessarily without wealth the two are much more closely aligned so there's not much else you need to convey other than I'm richer than you <laughs> you know that's the sort of key considerably. thing considerably yeah considerably <laughs> richer than Yao and whereas uh, whereas in the UK, there are, there are, I think we have a much more complex status hierarchy. So, for example, uh, you can have um, a title, you might have an aristocratic title of some sort. Um, and uh, you or you might have a, you know, you might and, and that 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 will go hand in hand with lots of other things that other people are expected to pick up on. So, you know, aristocrats generally won't they will do, do their best to avoid talking about wealth. They might they might not drive flashy cars. Um, you know, they might they will are likely to have a very posh accent, um, but they're not going to be they're not necessarily going to be dressed in, you know, new clothes or you know, but they will expect you to be able to know that they're an aristocrat. And that means that they actively are not going to need to sit there and advertise their wealth because they'll they'll expect you to know they'll expect you to pick up on that, um, you know. Uh, and and so uh, you know, people who do tell you how much they earn um, obviously aren't aristocrats. And similarly, we've got the same thing with with I think um, academics. So there is a kind of being being a famous academic in Britain certainly isn't associated with high wealth necessarily, but is associated with high status. So that's something else that you know people it's it's not in the same dimension as um, as as wealth, you know. And trying to go on about how wealthy you are uh, is not going to impress a, a professor if you're if you're if you're trying to vie on that dimension of, of status i think um unfortunately we have to stop in a moment um but i think we're just actually getting towards an interesting uh, part of the discussion and the different directions we could could have gone in gone in from here i think one of the things that interests me is for example bringing about to analysis and and also thinking about uh, policy making and especially uh, foreign policy I'm, I'm just intrigued as to how um, some of the different cultures we've talked about well we've only talked about two really which is the US and the UK I'm just interested in how those cultures might or the, the the governments of those countries might approach international affairs and dealings with other countries so for example with um, uh, let's say with the Russians just being sort of famously slightly sort of um i think with the the russians i think it's uh, you know the russian culture is really it sort of takes the sort of british level of cynicism cranks it up to a maximum and the sort of cynical worldview which says well everyone is out for themselves and you know we're just more honest about it than than other countries um you know and it's it's ultimately it's a zero sum game you know you you claim that it's all about you know you the west claim that you're all about you know human rights and um democracy and stuff but actually really that's just your way to gain influence at our expense um i mean the the downside of uh, indirect communication in in the sort of context of uh, of of russia is um if you look at uh, British military direction in the Crimea campaign, the reason the the charge of the Light Brigade happened was because somebody sort of didn't directly say what they wanted to. It was sort of that hill over there somewhere, do, go and do something over there. And uh, look what that resulted in. So I, I, we'll have to stop there. And I like the way, you know, as always on LF, we never know quite where it's going to go with the Cognitive Engineering Podcast from starting out with um, baby's weights through to the charge of the Light Brigade. Um, I leave you to draw what conclusions you can from that. So um, thank you very much. I'm Fraser McGrew. I've been here with Nick Hare and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. Thank you for listening. And until next time.
goodbye.